The Voice. Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay! Ta-da! The Voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Paperback Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be joined by psychological thriller author Susanna Beard. And we're talking ghosts and ghouls in books. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We've got a packed show coming up. We're being joined by Susanna Beard, author of five psychological thrillers, whose latest book, The Perfect Neighbour, is out now. And Julian and I will be talking about about the ghostly goings-on in books and recommending our favourite reads in this area. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you all. And we have uh, indeed. And again, as I say each week, just in case you've forgotten what you're doing at the moment, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And we do want to hear from you. So if you have a, a favourite author or you're reading a book, particularly a good one at the moment, and you want to tell us about it, or you're running a local book club or you're uh, an author or a local bookseller, please do get in touch. You can contact me on julian at river.radio with any tip bit of news that you've got and just before um uh, i finish i just want to to apologize to any of our listeners last week who tuned in uh, due to a technical hitch um you ended up listening to some music rather than heather and i and we do apologize and i think it also might have gone back out on the podcast but anyway you've got us today and we're gonna have a fantastic program so let's begin with the roundup of those interesting tidbits uh We were talking about the Hawking Index recently, and that's the measure of what percentage of a book people people actually read, normally reserved for those of us who buy weighty tomes, anticipating the development of their mind, only to find that the book far outweighs their ability to concentrate. Now, that's definitely, I'm going to put my hand up for uh, for that for me. But Mark Billingham, a favourite crime writer of mine, actually, has made a comment the other day at a literary festival about how he stops reading books after about 30 pages or so if it hasn't gripped him. And now this issue seems to be on everyone's lips at the moment. We seem to be a nation split between those of us who believe that's a great idea and those of us who persevere as the book might develop. Julian, what's your take on this? Well, that's interesting um, because... What I tend to do, if it's, if it's an author that I don't know, I, I, I pick up the book and I'll start reading the first chapter. And if the first, um, I don't know, 10, 15 or 20 um, sentences or lines don't grip me, then I don't bother. Um, it's been very rare for me to actually get a book that I've, I've, I've gone um, beyond that and then just given up. I mean, there's some that, you know, I, I'm reading and then I'll put aside because I've got something else, but it doesn't mean that I've given up on that book totally. So mine is a starter. It 
it's what grips me at the very right. beginning. It's the style of, 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 of the writing. Um, and that's what grips me. And that's yes. what will encourage me to take up a book of an author that I don't know. Yes. Normally, oh, sorry. In the past, I used to be a great, I've started it so I'll finish type of right, person. Yeah. <laughs> but now I've decided life's too short. But also, if you come yeah. back to a book, it's just sometimes it's your frame of mind, isn't it? And sometimes think, you, you yeah. want to read it just at a different time. Exactly. I think you're right. I mean, it could be a time in terms of, of, of what age you were at the time. And if you've come back five years later, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yes. I mean, you can always give them a go. But I think if you're going to persevere and really go through as if you're, you're wading through molasses, then that could actually put you off that author yes. um, forever, which would be a shame because yeah. you know, it, some authors, I mean, they, they have maybe one slight less sparkling book out of their canon and you might have picked that one, but the rest could be fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I've got a little bit of a tip here. Uh, J.K. Rowling's The Christmas Pig, published by Little Brown, has flown directly into the official top uh, 50 uh, spot in the UK, selling 60,010 copies in the first week wow. of and what Absolutely. But what is really important, Heather, mm-hmm. it, proves, it proves that pigs can fly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank this, you, Julian. <laughs> uh, this this superb sales figure uh, has helped the print market for books to surpass a staggering £37 million in the, for the first time uh, this year, thanks to a string of Super Thursday hits. Now, this needs to be put into, um, into perspective with a recent publishing industry report, which showed that online sales channels account for more than two-thirds of UK publishing revenues in 2020. Now, in percentage terms, it's astonishingly high it's 68.6 percent and that is showing the shift towards online sales so here is the rallying cry you must go out and support your local booksellers go into your booksellers your local ones and shop because if you don't use it you'll lose it. Absolutely. And I, I see that the um, the sales figures or the, the top um, 50 um, figures were out just uh, this morning. And the Christmas pig uh-huh. is the second week in the official top uh, 50 with another 31,000 copies sold. And Peter James, with his new book, Left for Dead, has nudged, nudged <gasps> Richard Osman's The Man Who Died Twice off the number one slot. <laughs> the question is for how long? That's the Indeed. question. Right. For all Asterix fans out there, I'm sure you'll all be delighted to know that a half-finished Asterix story has been found in a pile of old manuscripts. Rumours had always circulated that uh, René Goscinny, who authored the Asterix uh, books, had left fragments of Asterix in the circus when he died of a heart attack at a very young age of 51, back in 1977. But his daughter Anne has now found this wonderful adventure in his papers. So I'm sure you all know, but for those of you who don't, the adventures of Asterix follow the story of a diminutive warrior um, over in Gaul, fending off the Romans with a band of helpers, including his gargantuan friend Obelix and the inept bard (laughs) Cacophonix. And uh, they're obviously freeing freeing their village, and it's been a serialised cartoon since uh, 1959. And they're still firm favourites, and the the books are still being published, and Asterix and the Griffin uh, was the last one published just this year. 
year. Mm. Well, Asterix and Obelix are old friends of mine because when I worked for Hodron Stoughton, um, Hodron Stoughton was the publisher at the time, probably still is, uh, and of course is one of our greatest um, bestsellers. I mean, you just oh, yes. it was a license to print money. It was fantastic. And, and when you looked also at the at, at the number of languages yes. that um, Asterix would have been published, including Latin. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, storytellers everywhere are being invited by the Royal Shakespeare Company to help recreate the Bard's complete works of 37 plays for the modern age. These will be the tragedies, comedies and histories inspired by Shakespeare's canon and are to be chosen for staging both um, live and online in 2023 which will uh, mark the 400th anniversary of the publication of his first folio. Now, the idea was inspired by the pandemic, uh, which created one of the most difficult years for people. But bearing in mind that Shakespeare himself was writing during the plague, so these new stories are expected to reflect British society and hopefully capture the British sense of joy, the ridiculousness um, of it and the ridiculous humour that we have that comes from these dark times, uh, which is a very particular British trait. Fantastic. Yes, that will that will be excellent. Can't believe four hundredth anniversary of the publication in twenty twenty three. Wow. Yeah, amazing. So I read a brilliant story the other day. Feminist angst has erupted in Spain. Ooh. As it's been revealed that Spain's richest literary prize has gone to a novel thought to have been written by a woman, which has been touted as Spain's answer to Elena Ferrante. Uh, Eleanor Frante is um, is not known, so she is the, so the books are written, and nobody knows who Eleanor Frante um, is. So that's the, the book, mm-hmm. that's the big secret. So of course, Spain's answer, she, whoever it was, uh, Carmen Mola, um, was then revealed to be three male television scriptwriters. Yeah, <laughs> so fantastic. The prize, the prize was one million euros, and. So they were writing under the Carmen Mola, uh, the pen name. And it was a violent crime thriller about a female detective who loves grappa, karaoke and sex in SUVs. So it sounds a great book. And the trio first submitted the novel called The Beast under a pseudonym, Sergio Lopez, and then revealed the author was... Carmen Mola. But of course, that was a pseudonym as well, because the (laughs) final reveal was that it was three men. (laughs) The literary deception has not delighted everybody, but I think it's (laughs) marvellous. I'm I'm sure. So the pseudonym of a pseudonym of a pseudonym. Well, this this is very interesting because I I read um, a piece um, earlier um, uh, in the week, um, which is a a lady executive of one of the British publishing companies uh, was making quite a marked plea, interestingly, um, saying that now British um, publishing, book publishing is dominated um, by, by women. And, but what she was saying was, it was interesting that it it wasn't just it just wasn't a rebalancing of moving away from um, middle aged privileged white men, but that it was actually also the bringing along of of of, of those female executives' ideas and um, attitudes. Um, so it was very interesting. So it was quite refreshing that there was um, a lady executive um, at top of a game was actually saying, you know. The lads are a bit having it, having a bit of a hard time at the moment. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to sympathise too much with the uh, with the boys because I think women need a a bit of a 
a bit of a support, but I agree we don't want it to get overweighted on the other side. There no, needs to be a no. balance, doesn't there? Where there's an imbalance, an imbalance of attitude as well. Yeah, absolutely. This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we're looking at ghostly goings on in the book world. But first, I've been talking to the author, Susanna Beard. We heard about her latest book, The Perfect Neighbour, recently. This is a thrilling novel about how much we really know about our neighbours and what we should do about our suspicions. It's just been published by Joffy Books. But whilst I was talking to Susanna, I couldn't resist but also ask her about her favourite authors and the inspiration for her writing. So let's listen to my interview with her. There are genres I don't get involved in i i don't do horror and i don't do you know classic romance i'm not really a, a reader of romance and i but i did have a science fiction phase which i really enjoyed i don't do it anymore so generally i read quite widely but without those particular genres i read literary fiction which I love and I do still love the classics I read thrillers because that's my genre and actually I think what got me into thrillers was tv dramas which were thrillers Mm. rather than books which were thrillers and it's the same it's the same kind of creative impulse it's a story with a beginning a middle and an end but it but it happens to be suspenseful and and kind of exciting and, and fast moving. And I, I quite like that. So yeah. that's that's why I started writing in that genre. But I do like the sort of Isabella Lende's. I like Maggie O'Farrell. I like Ruth Rendell. I, you know, I'm, I sort of read quite widely in all the other genres as well. Every book's a new book if you've not read it before. Of course. Exactly. So did you always know you were going to be a writer? I wanted to be a writer in my teens and my father really put me off. And I think he put me off because he thought it wasn't a proper job, as parents did in those days. They wanted to do a proper job. And at that time, there wasn't really a natural route into writing. So it would have been quite brave, I think, to have done it then. And I, so I, I did linguistics at university and ended up in, in PR and marketing. And in PR, you write a lot. So I ended up with the practice in writing, but not the creative side. And at one point in my life, actually relatively recently, I thought to myself, I've got a bit more time now. If I don't do it now, I never will. So I took the plunge and got into writing and now I'm doing it full time which is great and you've had three books published this year so you've got five books all together yes I have yeah yeah. it sounds like I write really quickly but what happened was as I went into lockdown last year I had three books in various stages of completion And, and because I was in lockdown I just thought to myself right well it's a perfect opportunity to sit at my desk and get these finished and I did so well done. and then of course since then I've managed to get them all, all three of them out, but it did take me a bit longer than that to write them. <laughs> There's a lot of back work, isn't there? That... Lot... Exactly. And presumably your job as a PR has also helped you publicize your books as well. Oh, it has. I mean, I don't actually I didn't know anything about book um, marketing when I started this. And of course, but of course I was very interested because that's been my background. And I've learned such a lot, really a lot since I started. So my first book came out in 2017 and I've, I've learned about 
social media marketing. I've learned about how publishers work. I still don't really know how they work because they're a bit of a mystery. But I, yes, I do understand a lot more, although not really enough to take on other author job. You know, I wouldn't want to do that anyway because I want to write. But yeah, I, I don't particularly want to do it for myself. I, I've done that. You know, okay. I've done marketing and PR for years and years and years. So it's really nice to have a publisher to do it for me. But obviously I can help with that. Absolutely. And knowing what you know now, what would you recommend? What would you tell your younger self about getting published or writing a book? My younger self would have been less experienced. But I sometimes think to myself, why didn't I do this before? Because I'm enjoying it so much. But maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed it so much in a younger, you know, as a younger person. I suppose I know what I did right, and that was I went and trained myself. I went to the Faber Academy and I did a course which sort of got me got me going more quickly than it might have done otherwise. It gives you confidence to have done something like that. And I'm very glad I did that. I don't know really. No, I think I'm, you know, other than starting earlier. I don't think I'd have very much advice for my younger self except keep writing, you know, just keep going at it because the more you write, the more practice you get, the better you get. The good thing about being an author is that, you know, you build on the work that you've been doing. So there is always the opportunity, the chance that one day you might have the big bestseller. Always. That's always going to happen unless you get ill or something disastrous happens. But in other businesses, there isn't that opportunity in sight to do that for yourself. You know, you can't be rich and famous automatically in the same way. I'm not not saying I will be rich and famous with this, but there is always that possibility. And it's quite a nice thing to aim for. Yes, you you don't know who's going to pick up a book and turn into a film. Uh, yes, I wish, but yes, wish. that would be fantastic. But yeah, there is always that. And you do think about Margaret Atwood, for example. She wrote The Handmaid's Tale in the 80s. Yes. And it's only just been made into a TV drama. And yes. what a brilliant drama it's been. And she must have picked up huge numbers of sales because of that, I would have oh, thought. I was- a nice thing about being an author in my humble opinion, is it gives you an excuse just to read books as well? Because of course, my tutor said to me, the best thing you can do is read as many books as you can and watch films. I thought, this is my idea of heaven. <laughs> That's my homework. <laughs> so I do spend a lot of time on my sofa and then I have to go and do some exercise. So which authors have been your inspiration then for your psychological thrillers? Essie Lines, Susie Lines, who is also... Fairly local, I think. I think she's Reading-based. Ruth Rendell, of course. Agatha Christie. Oh, brilliant. Yes. Not, not that she... She did write thrillers. She wrote a lot of detective novels, but she also wrote thrillers, sometimes under a pseudonym, didn't she? As does Ruth Rendell. What are you reading at the moment? What's on your bedside table? I'm reading The Blind Assassin by... Margaret Atwood, the lovely Margaret Atwood. And it's a book that I was recommended to read. And I thought I got all her original books, but obviously not this one. So I'm sort of going back to one of her earlier books, having read most of her others. So I've got them all on my bookshelf, I think. And what's that one book that you go to again and again? 
What's your favourite book? Oh, I love The House of the Spirits, Isabella Allende. I just think it's... When I first read it, I had goosebumps. You know, I just loved it. And it's so mysterious and kind of spiritual. If I was on a desert island, I would want to take that with me. But I'd also want lots of other books with me, so it would be a difficult decision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a fabulous uh, choice. So thank you very much. Susanna, thank you very much and uh, good luck with uh, at The Perfect Neighbour, your latest Perfect book. Neighbor, yes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, well, The Perfect Neighbour by Susanna Beard is published by Joffy Books and available from Amazon now. Um, and other books that um, Susanna mentioned include Anything by Ruth Rendell, uh, one of the country's best loved crime writers. Maggie O'Farrell and her most recent best-selling title is Hamnet. Uh, Margaret Atwood's The Blind Assassin. And Isabella Lende, The House of Spirits. And I have to endorse uh, Susanna's uh, recommendation of um, Isabella Allende. She is absolutely superb, one of my favourite read uh, authors, and The House of the Spirits is fantastic. It really is lovely. And and this is where, I, I, where I, I'll illustrate where I uh, said, you know, the, the opening uh, paragraph grips me, and it starts, and Barabbas came to us by sea. Oh. And and then it starts. It's absolutely fantastic. They did turn it into a film, but I don't think it was very good. The book is fantastic. And I've just finished Isabel's latest book, which is A Long Petal of the Sea, which is published uh, by Bloomsbury at £8.99. It's uh, just recently come out. Uh, and you recommending it? I am indeed. I certainly am. In fact, I well, I was going to say I would recommend everything that Isabel writes. I have to be quite cautious. I think she writes her best books at everything, all her subjects, which are set in South America. She does write books which then go right across into the US, even historical. I think her very best are in her roots in South America of of, of Chile and all the South American countries, even though she does some historical ones that that start off and they move into America. I think all of her best are the ones in in, uh, South America, of which Long Petal of the Sea is, but it does also start in Spain during the um, Spanish Civil War before it moves over to Chile. Well, you might talk about Isabel Allende in more detail in a future show. In fact, I think we could do a whole programme. We probably could. (laughs) Now we've got a bit of a ghostly selection of books. Ghosts, love them or hate them, you can't escape them in literature. We've been telling spooky stories to each other ever since we were painting on cave walls. And now, millennia later, our obsession shows no signs of waning. The very best ghost stories get you to suspend your disbelief because whatever the nature of their manifestation, the rationale for that ghost existing needs to be entirely convincing. So here are just of our few of our favourites. Well, I'm actually going to kick off with um, the Ghost Stories of an Antiquity by M.R. James, which was first published by Edward Arnold in 1904. And I was introduced to these ghost stories by M.R. James um, by my father when I was a boy. And I have to say they are the most chilling stories I have ever read, and they remain my favourite ghost stories to this day. Fantastic. 
Yeah, uh, yes, Ghost Stories of Nantucket was, as I say, was first published in 1904 with eight stories in that edition. Then in 1931, Edward Arnold published a collected edition, which saw an additional 22 stories being added to the original eight. Now, as you probably guessed, with the number of stories involved, they are all short stories. Um, and probably the most famous of them is A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which tells uh, the tale of a young Cambridge professor by the name of Parkins, who takes a holiday on the southeast coast of England in Suffolk. And whilst he's on holiday, he's promised a colleague of his that he would investigate the grounds of a nearby preceptory for him. Anyway, he goes out and he, he does an investigation and he finds an ancient bronze whistle with two Latin inscriptions on it. One reads, Quis est iste, qui venit. And on the other side are inscribed the letters, Fla bus flay four, in the shape of a plus sign. Now he puts the whistle in his pocket, doesn't think much more of it, and goes, makes his way back to the hotel. But notes on, as he's walking back along the empty and desolate beach, a shape of distinct personage making great efforts to catch up with him. After dinner, Parkins goes to his room and he takes out the whistle and, and, and translates the Latin inscription as, who is this who is coming? Then Parkins makes a very, very big mistake. He blows the whistle twice. Suddenly, the wind surges outside his bedroom window. Visions of a wide, dark expanse of night with fresh winds blowing enters his mind. So too the vision of a solitary figure. That night, Parkins dreams of a man fleeing in absolute fear along the shoreline, pursued by an apparition moving in a strange manner, but at incredible speed. Parkins wakes up suddenly and the vision is gone. But as soon as he closes his eyes, the vision returns. So unable to get back to sleep, Parkins decides he's going to read. And as he strikes a match to light the candle, he's aware of scurrying noises on the opposite side of his room. Anyway, the following morning, um, Parkins has had his breakfast and he's uh, leaving, about to leave the hotel when the maid mentions to him that she has uh, made up his uh, room and she's also made up both beds in the room, especially as the linen in the second bed, on the second bed, was twisted and contorted. Parkins goes off and does what he's doing during the day and, and, and as he's returning to the hotel later in the day, he comes across a terrified hyperventilating boy running away from the hotel in absolute fear. And when he questions the boy, he tells Parkins of a white faceless figure behind an unlit window of one of the hotel rooms. Uh, rather, I should say, the hotel bedrooms. When Parkins goes to investigate, he realises that the apparition the boy saw was from his own bedroom. Now, I've done a little bit of a reading for you to, I hope, give you a flavour of the story. By some unfortunate accident, there were neither blinds nor curtains to the windows of the professor's room. The previous night he had thought little of this, but tonight there seemed every prospect of a bright moon rising to shine directly on his bed and probably wake him later on. When he noticed this, he was a good deal annoyed, but with an ingenuity which I can only envy, he succeeded in rigging up, with the help of a railway rug, some safety pins, and a stick and umbrella, a screen which, if it only held together, would completely keep the moonlight off his bed. And shortly afterwards he was comfortably in that bed. When he had read a somewhat solid work, long enough to produce a decided wish for sleep, he cast a drowsy glance round the room, blew out the candle, and fell back upon the pillow. He must have slept soundly for an hour or more when a sudden clatter shook him up in a most unwelcome manner. 
In a moment he realised what had happened. His carefully constructed screen had given way and a very bright frosty moon was shining directly on his face. This was highly annoying. Could he possibly get up and reconstruct the screen? Or could he manage to sleep if he did not? For some minutes he lay and pondered over the possibilities. Then he turned over sharply and with all his eyes open lay breathlessly listening. There had been a movement, he was sure, in the empty bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have it moved, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No, the commotion began again. There was a rustling and shaking, surely more than any rat could cause. I can figure to myself something of the professor's bewilderment and horror, for I have, in a dream thirty years back, seen the same thing happen. But the reader will hardly perhaps imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. He was out of his own bed in one bound and made a dash towards the window where lay his only weapon, the stick with which he had propped his screen. This was, as it turned out, the worst thing he could have done because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden smooth motion, slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and in front of the door. Parkins watched it in a horrid perplexity. Somehow the idea of getting past it and escaping through the door was intolerable to him. He could not have borne, he didn't know why, to touch it, and as for its touching him, he would sooner dash himself through the window than have that happen. It stood for the moment in a band of dark shadow, and he had not seen what its face was like. Now it began to move in a stooping posture, and all at once the spectator realised, with some horror and some relief, that it must be blind, for it seemed to feel about it with its muffled arms in a groping and random fashion. Turning half away from him, it became suddenly conscious of the bed he had just left, and darted towards it, and bent over and felt the pillows in a way which made Parkins shudder, as he had never in his life thought it possible. In a very few moments it seemed to know that the bed was empty, and then, moving forward into the area of light and facing the window, it showed for the first time what manner of thing it was. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Well, I hope that gives you a little flavour of it. It's not quite the end of the story, so you must actually uh, read it. Um, in the collection, the other notable stories um, include the Mezzotint, which is also extremely creepy. Uh, number 13, um, the stalls at Barchester Cathedral, which um, is about a murder committed by one of the clergy, uh, and then the warning to the curious, and many, many more. And really fantastic. Now... These stories are really quite remarkable when you consider the author. Uh, Montague Rhodes James was born in 1862, the son of a clergyman in the vicarage at Goodnestone near Dover. And he wrote these stories to entertain his friends and students at Cambridge. In fact, several of the stories started out being written as Christmas Eve entertainment when M.R. James would read them aloud on Christmas Eve to his friends and his colleagues, uh, and he intended them to be read aloud rather than, than silently. In fact, some now, of them are, are done on Christmas Eve um, on the it, BBC, aren't they? They are, yes. They, they are, yes, indeed. Um, and as you've guessed... Obviously, these ghost stories um, uh, were a hobby. Uh, and in fact, M.R. James is a medieval scholar. And 
he was he was the one responsible for translating the New Testament apocrypha. And in addition, he contributed to the Encyclopedia Biblica. And whilst being a don at Cambridge, he rose to be provost of King's College, so no slouch in that area. And in 1918, he returned to his old school, Eton, uh, to become provost until his death at the age of 73 in 1936. Now, in addition to his academic qualifications and accolades and honours, he was awarded by the King um, and became a member a member of the Order of Merit in 1930, which is really quite something, because that's limited to only a handful. I can't re- quite remember how many um, yes. uh, uh, at any one time, about 12, I believe. Right. Um, now, if you really, really like hair-raising ghost stories, then I urge you to go and buy the, the copy yourself. But really, do be warned. Read them with the lights on and keep checking over your shoulder. I mean, as I was preparing for this, my skin was starting to tingle and my hair was going up again. Now, The Ghost Stories by M.R. James is still available, I'm really pleased to tell you, and it's published by um, British Library Classics, and it's in hardback at fourteen ninety nine, which is excellent value because... This is the edition that contains all 30 ghost stories. Brilliant. I think all the books that were recommended today should definitely be read with the light on. Oh, definitely. <laughs> as many lights on as possible. <laughs> or in the darkness on Halloween. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or, yeah, or, or under the bedclothes with a torch. Yes. <laughs> So my uh, my choice of book is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Ooh. Jackson. Mm-hmm. This is described by many as the greatest haunted house story ever written. So it's a seminal classic written by the Queen of Creep and acclaimed as such not just when it was published but regularly um, when people are asked about their favourite ghost stories, it's chosen by authors and reviewers um, as their choice for a spooky book. So Stephen King, you know, the author of The Shining, which could have mm-hmm. been another choice of ours. It could um, be. He called it one of the finest horror novels of the 20th century. And the Wall Street Journal said it was widely regarded as the greatest haunted house story ever written. So it has huge fans out there, just ap- apart from me. So it's a classic supernatural thriller by an author who helped define the genre. It was published in 1959 and um, Shirley Jackson's work has been hailed as the perfect work of unnerving terror. Now, we've got a little bit of a reading from it. And it's right from the beginning of the book. So it's not scary. Like Julian's reading was a little bit scary. This is sort of setting the scene. Anyway, let's have a listen. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and catadids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It has stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Dr John Montague was a doctor of philosophy. He'd taken his degree in anthropology, feeling obscurely that in this field he might come closest to his true vocation, the analysis of supernatural manifestations. He was scrupulous about the use of his title because his investigations being so utterly unscientific, he hoped to borrow an air of respectability, even scholarly authority from his education. 
It had cost him a good deal in money and pride, since he was not a begging man, to rent Hill House for three months, but he expected absolutely to be compensated for his pains by the sensation following upon the publication of his definitive work on the causes and effects of psychic disturbances in a house commonly known as Haunted. He'd been looking for an honestly haunted house all his life. When he heard of Hill House, he'd been at first doubtful, then hopeful, then indefatigable. He was not the man to let go of Hill House once he'd found it. Dr Montague's intentions with regard to Hill House derived from the methods of the intrepid 19th century ghost hunters. He was going to go and live in Hill House and see what happened there. It was his intention at first to follow the example of the anonymous lady who went to stay at Ballachin House and ran a summer-long house party for sceptics and believers with croquet and ghost-watching as the outstanding attractions. But sceptics, believers and good croquet players are harder to come by today. Dr Montague was forced to engage assistance. Perhaps the leisurely ways of Victorian life lent themselves more agreeably to the devices of psychic investigation, or perhaps the painstaking documentation of phenomena has largely gone out as a means of determining actuality. At any rate, Dr Montague had not only to engage assistance, but to search for them. Because he thought of himself as a careful and conscientious, he spent considerable time looking for his assistance. He combined the records of the psychic societies, the backfires of sensational newspapers, the reports of parapsychologists, and assembled a list of names of people who had, in one way or another, at one time or another, no matter how briefly or dubiously, been involved in abnormal events. From his list, he first eliminated the names of the people who were dead. When he then crossed off the names of those who seemed to him publicity seekers, of subnormal intelligence, or unsuitable because of a clear tendency to take the centre of the stage, he had a list of perhaps a dozen names. Each of these people then received a letter from Dr Montague, extending an invitation to spend all or part of a summer at a comfortable country house, old but perfectly equipped with plumbing, electricity, central heating and clean mattresses. The purpose of their stay, the letters stated clearly, was to observe and explore the various unsavoury stories which had been circulated about the house for most of its 80 years of existence. Dr Montague's letters did not say openly that Hill House was haunted, because Dr Montague was a man of science, and until he had actually experienced a psychic manifestation in Hill House, he would not trust his luck too far. Consequently, his letters had a certain ambiguous dignity, calculated to catch at the imagination of a very special sort of reader. To his dozen letters, Dr Montague had four replies, the other eight or so candidates having presumably moved on and left no forwarding address, or possibly having lost interest in the supernormal, or even perhaps never having existed at all. To the four who replied, Dr Montague wrote again, naming a specific day when the house would be officially regarded as ready for occupancy and enclosing detailed directions for reaching it. Since, as he was forced to explain, information about finding the house was extremely difficult to get, particularly from the rural community which surrounded it. On the day before he was to leave for Hill House, Dr Montague was persuaded to take into his select company a representative of the family who owned the house, and a telegram arrived from one of his candidates, backing out with a clearly manufactured excuse. 
Another never came or wrote, perhaps because of some pressing personal problem which had intervened. The other two came. So here we have, this is the story of four seekers of poltergeist who arrive at a notoriously unfriendly pile called Hill House. There's Dr Montague, an occult scholar, looking for the solid evidence of haunting. There's Theodora, his light-hearted assistant. Eleanor, a friendless, fragile young woman, well acquainted with poltergeist and destined and Luke the future heir of the Hill House. At first their stay seems destined to be merely a spooky encounter with inexplicable phenomena but Hill House is gathering its powers and soon it'll choose one of them to make its own. So basically you need to read the book. The genius lies in the linkages that um, Jackson makes between the haunted house and haunted minds, including those of its reader. So you actually get caught up, of course, you get caught up in the maelstrom that's happening into a crescendo Mm -hmm. of an unforgettable ending. So it's been made into two films, a play and even a Netflix series, but I've not seen any of them, so I can't comment on that. Um, But um, Jackson decided to write a ghost story after reading about a group of 19th century psychic researchers who studied a house and supposedly reported their scientific uh, findings. And Julian, I've got a spooky story for you. Have you indeed? Well, Spill. Absolutely. So the Victorians basically invented this sort of communicating with the dead it was mm-hmm. done in started in america and it just swept through europe and britain and everybody but everybody was involved so queen victoria was a fan um, conan doyle you know he was writing sort of, course, of yes. sherlock holmes and then doing seances in the evenings um elizabeth barrett browning and gabrielle rosetti gabrielle dante rosetti the the poet and painter right and i just happened to be talking to um author and scholar barry bullen uh last week i was on a Mm -hmm. course with him about rosetti and he's just written a book about rosetti and the supernatural and uh basically the story is that um rosetti held seances and his brother was part of the group and after each seance the brother would write a diary and um professor bullen has found these diaries and is publishing them but what the really brilliant story is is that um michael rossetti is sort of quite matter of fact he's sort of saying oh we heard this ghost but nobody understood that story you know so he's quite sort Mm. of poo-pooing it all yeah but uh on one occasion they managed to get hold of this spirit called Huey who was from New Zealand he was a Maori and he said that he recognised Michael Rossetti Uh, and of course Michael Rossetti writes in his diary I have no idea I have got no remembrance of this uh, of this person and the Maori felt that he'd met him three years ago and of course Michael couldn't remember this so Professor Bullen's been doing this research for his book 
And he's found out that actually a Maori um, dance group came over from New Zealand, arrived into Britain, went and performed in Newcastle at the same week that Michael Rossetti had gone up to Newcastle to visit a friend. So, and one of the group was a Maori called Huey. Gosh. So basically, there's a, a Maori dancer called Huey at the same time in the same place as Mike Rossetti. And this voice is saying, I recognise you. And Gosh. Michael in the day can't remember it, but now it's been placed. Isn't that amazing? That is really quite incredible. Yes. Yeah, anyway, wow. I thought I would just share that because I only learned that last week. No, that's very good. Yes, a true story. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Well, um, no list of ghost stories um, can go by without including um, the Victorian classic The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which is set in a remote country house. Uh, and it concerns a governess who has the care of a young boy and girl who are orphans. Uh, and she comes to believe that she can see the ghosts of a man and a woman maliciously haunting the house. One of the intriguing aspects of reading this unresolved story is that seen through modern eyes, it's ambiguous offer themselves up as metaphors, if you like, of child neglect and sexual abuse within the home. I'm not now, sure I, I agree with that. No, I don't think so. I have to say, my, I remember my father um, having read The Turn of the Screw and he's declared it the most disappointing ghost story he'd ever written. But then that was his opinion and it's not everybody's opinion and not mine. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> but it is a famous, it is, always, it is it on is. the list, yes. isn't it? Yes, Not yes. Famous. And he wrote it when he was living in Rye. Oh. At Lam, and when he'd rented Lamb's house, which um, is a little plug for the National Trust. You can go and visit, but it still has tenants in it, so it was only open on certain days of the week. Oh, and Lamb House is absolutely fabulous. Yes, we've been. We, 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 we went, didn't we? Yes, We did lovely. indeed. And it's yes. also the setting for Map and Lucia. It is indeed, yes. So who lives is. there? Is it Map or Lucia? In that um, fabulous room. There's this room that overlooks the high street, so you can look both ways up and down the room, which is often used in the books as uh, keeping an eye on all the uh, all the locals to find out what they're doing. Yes, and I'm it, I'm not sure it was um yeah I can't remember no. who, which one of them lived no. in it. And I'm going to say the final choice of uh, scary books is The Woman in Black by Susan mm. Hill. Now, this was written in 1983, so the most modern of all the books that we're, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about. And I suppose it's most famous because of the hugely successful stage and film adaptions. Um, mm. So Susan Hill's novel has lost none of its shocking gothic power and is the second longest running play in the West End. Gosh. And has haunted wow. millions. Now, of course, the longest running play is The Mousetrap by Agatha Christie. Yes. So The Woman in Black is the second. So this is set in the sinister Eel Marge house, which is cut off from the world entirely when the waters rise over its causeway. Always good to have a spooky haunted house that's cut off. Yes. So a young solicitor called Arthur Kipps tries to unravel the affairs and deadly history of the house and its owner, the deceased Mrs. Drablo. But the woman in black will haunt him forever. And I think this is, that's the really interesting thing, isn't it? Is the fact that 
It's the forever bit. Yes. So yes. it begins in a very similar vein to that of Turn of the Screw and, and obviously a myriad other ghost stories as the person tells the ghost story to a group of rapt listeners. Mm-hmm. So it's that whole thing that you said right at the beginning that ghost stories are basically made to be read aloud, aren't yes. they? Yes. So that's a great thing. I think we don't read aloud enough to each other. I, d- I don't think we do. Um, no, I, I don't think we do. And um, I would like to think the parents still read to their children, but I think also it's something that you should do as as, as adults as yes. well. Oh, yes, I do, totally. Mm. So ghost stories are... Um, so what makes this story all the more chilling is that Arthur Kipps, our narrator, is now an elderly man. And so he's recalling the episodes that we experience in the present as he's trying to understand his experiences, what's happened in the house, what terrible events are recorded in the documents, who is the... The child that cries in the night as all the lights in Marsh House go out. And he remembers how, in the dark, empty nursery of the house, he felt something worse than terror. And it says in the books, I felt not fear, not horror, but an overwhelming grief and sadness, a sense of loss and bereavement, a distress mingled with utter despair. So in Kip's retelling of this story, we see the young, optimistic Arthur before we find out the horrible truth that the older man who's telling the story already knows. Mm. You need to buy the book. Yes, I think so. I think so. Gosh. So do you believe in ghosts? Well, um, in, I think I, I do. And I'm going to re- re- recount a, a, a story that involves myself. And it was when I was uh, when I was a schoolboy. Yes. And I uh, remember waking up in the night and I thought um, that I must have cried out in the night um, and that my father had come into the bedroom to, to, to see what it was. Yeah. But when I thought about it, but but the but the figure was um, so my bed was here. There was the the window on on to the right, and my the figure was standing on the right hand side, looking over me, and and that was it. And I managed to drop off to sleep again. But when I thought about it the following morning, it could not have been my father because the only way he could have get to stand by the right hand of the bed would have to climb over the bed because my bed was in the wall between um, an airing cupboard and the wall behind. So whilst there was a space, there was no way to walk around the bed. Right. But uh, there had been an old man who had lived in the house before that my parents had bought it. I don't know if it was him. but So was he a knight? Was it a, a, a benign presence? Yes, it- yes. It was stooped over looking and, and that was it. And that's why I thought maybe I had cried out in the night. Uh, and that my father had come. So to, he was to, looking after. I've got goosebumps. <laughs> have you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, remi- uh, that reminds me of a story that I have, which isn't a story about me, but about uh, my husband, I suppose. So we'd gone away. We were staying at a farmhouse with. Uh, I think we we'd got my parents along as well, and um, he'd got up to go to the loo in the middle of the night. And I had this massive abscess. I was not well at all. I had this massive abscess in my mouth. And my temperature was really high. And when Mike got back to go to the, from the bathroom, he saw somebody sort of sitting by the bedside as if it was looking looking after me as, as oh, he was gosh. out in the bathroom. So, of course, 
he, th- he thought it was me. And of course, then you look round at the bed and you could see that I wasn't sitting on the chair. I was still mm. in bed. So when we got up in the morning, we were telling my parents the story. And the lady who, it was a bed and breakfast, so the lady who was serving us breakfast said, oh, which bedroom are you? So we said, which bedroom? Well, she says, oh, yes, that's supposed to be haunted. Gosh. Gosh. <laughs> but again, it was a nice presence. It was somebody yes. sort of looking after. Yes, uh, yes, no, no menacing. It was just, just yes, doing some uh, nursing duty, overlooking, um, looking after you. Yeah, interesting. Although yeah. I've got to say that all of the stories that we've chosen um, today all have a little bit more of a sinister. They do. They certainly do. Yes, I mean you can certainly say that for Mr. James, which is really interesting to, for for whilst uh, not exactly a clergyman himself, but sort of certainly a theologian. Well, a theologian, Any, he probably yeah, understands. Probably, the, <laughs> well, yes, exactly. He's a, yeah. Yes, sure. He's steeped in all of that sort of stuff, <laughs> exactly. isn't he? Exactly. Yeah. But also a medieval yeah. scholar as well. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, all those wonderful stories. Um, yeah, and I think we are brought up talking about ghost stories and things that go bump yes, in the night. Yes, Well, it is. Well, because it's everything. It's all the unexplained, isn't it? And it's how you, in a strange way, how you try to rationalise the unexplained. Yes. Um, and, 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 and And how that manifests itself in your imagination or indeed whether whether it is imagination that there are spirits that roam um, yes. who wait to be released. Who yeah. knows? So the ladies, yeah. the young ladies that started this whole craze of spiritualism with these three daughters, three young girls in, uh, in America that started hearing ghost stories and they, were tap- they could hear tapping. Oh, right. And then they st- it started, so they told their parents and their parents got other people in to check. Mm. And then it went from this little dinner party conversational to them being on stage and still being able to communicate with the, with the dead. Uh, right. And so that's how the craze started in 1848. But, of course, later in life, they said it was all a, a craze. They made it up. Right. But during when they were doing it, they were quite unassuming. So it mm-hmm. was felt that they might have been pressurised to uh, to say it was made up. Well, it could be that there being children doing that and then maybe somebody behind it started to manipulate it and think, oh, well, here's a way of making a bit of cash. Yes. And by, by the way, we'll invent some ectoplasm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there are all of those stories, aren't there? <laughs> there are. Anyway, we've got uh, there's one more thing to add, oh, uh, and it's and it's the Cookham Festival has another winter warmer to keep us entertained until the festival starts properly next May. Excellent. On it, yes, on Friday the 26th of November, the best-selling um, thriller writer Gerald Seymour will be in conversation in the Pinder Hall in Cookham. Uh, now, um, Gerald Seymour is a master storyteller and his characters populate the murky worlds of organised crime and terrorism and international conflict. And in fact, the intelligence communities um, inspired um, uh, by his time as an, uh, as an ITN reporter, which were the, the reason he could write these books. And his most famous book is Harry's Game, which many will remember was turned into... Um, an amazing television series, yes. and it had the haunting music by Clanad as as the opening music, yes. and set set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Yes. Now, to book your ticket, please visit the website of the festival, which is www.cookhamfestival.com. 
www.pindahall.co.uk. And the event will take place on Friday, 26th of November at Pinder Hall in Cookham. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It does, doesn't it? And um, yeah, I think I remember him as an ITN report being on the news. Mm-hmm. Yes, Gerald uh, Seymour, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's obviously yeah. got lots of stories that he's mm. picked up from there. Yeah. And why not turn them into... Um, well, exactly, craft them into in, in, into um, fantastic thrillers. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think Harry's Game was actually his first his first book. I believe it was, yes, I believe it was. And I, and I think that, because of course, in, um, I, I only remember it sketchily, but I mean, I, it, it was, I believe, quite tragic um, in the end. And... Um, um, but I, I remember it was the haunting music of Clanad yes. um, that that opened and closed the show that gave the atmosphere as well. Yeah. I thought that was quite brilliant. something. Brilliant. Yeah. You're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, if you've got a great book recommendation... If you run a local book club or are a local author yourself, well, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me on heather at river.radio and Julian is julian at river.radio with any of your book news. And we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So our hour is almost up. So a very Indeed. big thank you all for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks also to Susanna Beard for um, chatting to us and uh, to Julian for his readings. That's been a spooky, a spooky show. <laughs> it was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> So other books we've been recommending today are um, J.K. Rowling's The Christmas Pig, which is published by Little Brown. Asterix and the Griffin by Jean-Yves Ferry, published by Sphere. Uh, Ghost Stories of an Antiquity by M.R. James. Which is a British Library classic. Oh, thank you. No, yep, that's all good. Yes, I just reminded that. And the the Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, published by Penguin Modern Classics. And um, Penguin Modern Classics also do the Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And the Woman in Black and other ghost stories by Susan Hill, published by Profile. Great. And keep listening to River Radio Live as Let's Talk Business is on at one o'clock today. And they always have some great um, local business news. So it's definitely They do indeed. Yes. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 on River Radio. And we're talking about books with a theme of hotels. We are indeed, yes. A shade of luxury, maybe. Oh, no, murder. (laughs) It's it's always murder, I think, with us two. (laughs) Murder on the menu. (laughs) (laughs) It is if you're cooking. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) And if you're not... Well, you see, just to say that, this is why I always lay my table as knife, fork and stomach pump. (laughs) If you're not able to join us next week live, then do listen again, which you can do directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as uh, as a podcast. So you can just search for um, Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. We look forward to you joining us next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Girlfriend, don't feel like a girlfriend. 